0: Season two, episode two, coming to you from just a few miles north of NORAD, the Strategic Command Center of our U.S. military, and we're here at the Strategic Command Center of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I'm Terry, Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance.
1: And I'm Alan, Church Planning Leader for Eastern Pennsylvania Alliance and also a coordinator for the Northeast Alliance Church Planting
0: And with us here today is our good friend, AJ. Glad to be here, guys. Our excellent producer. Yes, sir. He makes us sound good even when we don't. And we appreciate that very, very much. So, today, Alan, we're going to talk to another friend of yours. In season one, we talked to Daniel M., uh, a friend of yours. And today we're talking to Daniel Yang, a friend of yours. And they're friends of one another, the Daniel and Daniel duo. So
1: uh, tell us a little bit about Daniel Yang and what you appreciate about him. Well, I appreciate him, first of all, because of his heart, uh, his heart for the gospel, his heart for church planting. He has been a church planter, and now he serves as a major resource to church planter. He helps to lead the Send Institute, uh, which he'll tell us about in the interview. It's a valuable resource for pastors and church planters.
0: Very good. So uh, grab some coffee, grab some tea, make sure you hold your pinky out if you grab tea, Uh, and let's... Go to Daniel Yang. Welcome, Daniel Yang, to uh, Equipping You Podcast. We appreciate you joining us
1: today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We appreciate you taking the time. And we're looking forward to uh, learn about you and uh, Send Institute. So, uh, but we love to start. We love to hear about people's ministry journey. So tell us about yours.
2: Yeah, you know, I uh, really started out um, uh, in software. So my background in, in uh, undergraduate training was computer science, and, uh, but I really always had been serving in the local church, and I grew up in Detroit, and so the church that I really kind of started my ministry chops in was, uh, was in Detroit, and it was probably around 24, 25, I had just been about four years into my uh, software career, where I went through really a lot of struggle in my faith. Long story short, um, I said, you know, I'm just going to learn the Bible. Uh, so I paid my way through seminary, uh, and that was kind of just me wanting to learn the Bible. And it's probably about halfway through seminary where I realized that the Lord was changing, not just my heart, but my vocation. Uh, so um, my wife and I, we grew up in the Alliance. That's our background. Even though we didn't plant churches with the Alliance, we grew up in that. and uh, But we always thought we'd be overseas missionaries. And so we always thought that we'd be uh, somewhere that, uh, in Asia. Uh, and that was really the direction that we were thinking about. And then probably when I started learning more about church planning and the need in North America, that's when I realized that, you know, I think God's calling us to reach uh, people here in North America. Part of that is because it's our immigrant uh, story. Um, and we came as refugees uh, in 78, 79. And just realizing that, um, you know, the world is is here and um, that there's a, a growing segment in North America that are— um, really far from Jesus. So our our call to ministry was not so much because we thought we were gonna be pastors, we thought we were gonna be missionaries and church planning just seemed to make sense here in North America. So we ended up uh, in Texas for about three years. I was uh, mentored uh, by a guy named Bob Roberts who leads a church called uh, yeah. Northwood in a church planning movement called Gloquinet. And then uh, he sent us up to plant in Toronto and we were there five years uh, before we came here to Chicago uh, to lead the Send Institute.
0: Speaking of the SEND Institute, Daniel, tell us uh, a little bit about that. What is the SEND Institute? What do you do? And and what is the importance of the SEND Institute, particularly at this point in time in our nation?
2: Yeah, so the SEND Institute was uh, is a partnership between the Billy Graham Center here at Witten College, which is where I'm officed at, uh, and then the North American Mission Board. And really, it was an idea between Ed Stetzer uh, and Jeff Christopherson, who are our co-executive directors, to really create you know, a place where we can think better about church planting for the future. And so what are some of the things that we need to pay attention to? Uh, what do we need to learn from the last 30, 40 years of church planting? So part of that is uh, trying to, 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 proliferate best practices. But then a big part of that also is to try to figure out, you know, what what's, what's really happening in culture and how do we respond better in the way that we plant churches. So we actually, uh, you know, what I do kind of on a day-to-day basis is I work with church planning leaders uh, like yourself, and uh, we do a couple of things. We do some research uh, to, to kind of bring people together. So uh, we're actually working on uh, with CPLF, which is a group that you're, you're a part of. Uh, a a project around Latino church planting. Uh, And then we also convene uh, church planting leaders for think tanks uh, and for uh, gatherings. And so primarily convening um, research and then thinking better uh, about the future for church planting. Well, I know that
1: uh, Send Institute has already been valuable to me in my role, Uh, the research and the knowledge that's come out of there. I appreciated the best practice stuff. Thank you very much for that. We are grateful that idea emerged. You know, you talked about your journey uh, you know, from Bob Roberts, which is a great start in church planning, to mm-hmm. Toronto, and now. But what made the Send Institute the
2: right next step for you? You know, there's there's the uh, there's definitely the personal and then the uh, vocational aspect of of how I ended up here. Uh, we planted uh, a church in downtown Toronto, and um, it was for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, very. It was going very well, and we have great leadership. And since I've left, the church has continued to grow. And I knew that probably I was a personality where I'd either plant again or something was going to happen. And so we were in a season of discernment. I'd always known that I was going to do a PhD. Uh, I'd always known that uh, that was kind of, you know, for it, it, was, it was kind of a, a personal aspiration of mine. And I just didn't know if it was the right time because I was leading the church and it was growing and had a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of needs in terms of leadership. So we got to a point really where my wife was like, you know, if you still want to do your Ph.D., then this is back in 2016. Then 2017, we we started thinking about that. And really through a series of events, uh, our family prayed and fasted for about three weeks. And uh, we came out of that time saying, we think the Lord's calling me to do a Ph.D. We just don't know if I can do it healthily while I'm leading a church. And so, uh, really that kind of sent us in the direction of, uh, you know, do we leave Toronto? You know, what does all that mean? And then it was during that time that, um, that Ed and Jeff called me up and said, Hey, would you consider coming down to lead, uh, what we're, we're starting here at, at the Billy Graham center? And I actually said no, uh, twice. I said, no, that's not what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's like, I don't want to, I don't want two full-time jobs. And but you know, um, kind of the uh, on the on the flip side so there's kind of the personal and there's also the vocational. I knew that there was a point really in my ministry calling where I was going to be um, trying to to help. You know better the conversation around church planting and a part of that is because you know I know that North America is changing quickly it's hard to see it on a day-to-day basis but I know that the way that we've planted the way that I planted the way that most churches uh, are being planted today uh, come out of a probably a 30 year 40 year history of church planting and uh, you know I, I just I just had the sense that that wouldn't necessarily be the only way to plant in the future and then probably you know along that um, I, I also felt like there is a time in point where I knew that God was going to call me to, to be a resource, uh, for, for church planning movements. And I still don't know what that looks like, but it's, it's kind of neat to see how some of those things are unfolding through the sentence yeah. too. Very cool. Thanks, man. I, uh,
0: turned 60 last week and I know you guys are thinking, well, you All sure, right. sure don't look that old Terry, well. but, uh, <laughs> my point is, uh, a lot of things have changed in my lifetime. It's a different, sure. different world than I grew up in churches viewed differently than than it was when I was uh, growing up, even when I began in ministry in, in 1981. Yeah. So all of these culture changes that seem to happen so quickly, uh, what, what are some of those key changes uh, taking place in North American culture, Daniel, that pastors and church church planners need to be aware of as they seek to share the gospel?
2: Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the big things is, and it's, it's not just one thing, but I think it's, it's a multiple number of things that have created one thing. And that is that I think there's definitely less of a institutional memory of, um, of, of church. Um, and what I mean by that is that probably 30 years ago, when some of the models of church planning that we developed uh, were developed, there were still somewhat of a reliance on the, the idea that um, church is a part of, you know, the, the calendar church was a part of the family history. And, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because when I went to Toronto, which I'd say probably Toronto might be a decade and a half ahead of, of the U S in terms of its, its secularity, you know, I would meet white Canadians who had never, you know, I mean, have never had a spiritual conversation and, you know, I mean, and I, in, in the States, I've, I've met people like that too, but it came a point when I realized that, um, and many people are realizing that the institutional form of uh, the way that we do things in denominations or even networks—you know, when the networks started popping up about twenty, thirty years ago—that that that's all relied on this idea that there used to be uh, some kind of heyday in in North American Christianity, and so we're hearkening back to that. And I think that with each generation, there's less of that. So we, I think we kind of have this understanding among immigrants. Like we understand this about immigrants. Uh, and I think it's, we're starting to see what we see among immigrants the same way uh, with the kind of the, you know, the indigenous North American population. So I would think you know, less institutional memory of the church. And then secondly is that I think that um, you know, it's interesting. Pluralism, you, know, you don't have a huge number of Muslims. I think Muslims make less than 2% of the U.S. population. But the perception that they have, same thing with the um, LGBTQ community, although they're a small number, the perception that they have uh, really plays a role in the way that people perceive religion, lifestyle. And I think for us, you know, um, it, it was easy at one point to, to dominate the conversations when it came to religion. Now, uh, now it's, 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 it's not easy at all. I think, I mean, uh, we have to learn how to engage in a pluralistic society. And uh, that that's increasingly becoming more and more apparent uh, every day. And so I don't, you know, to me, I don't think the picture is bleak. I just think the landscape's changing a little bit and uh, the gospel stays the same. Uh, but the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about our culture uh, might have to shift. Things are
1: shifting for sure. And I think mm-hmm. some people talk about the rising of the nuns. Now, And some of our listeners might not know what we mean when we say the nuns. But uh Catholic, what is, Catholic what is sisters? Is no, what not Catholic about? sisters. Oh, right. Thank you. Yeah, not N U N S, but N O N E S. Yeah. Oh, I thank it. you. I'm glad Daniel's here that he can clarify right. that for you, Terry. So would you do that for us, please, Daniel?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's not Sally Field, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not
1: <laughs> or Whoopi that. Goldberg?
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Now that that goes back a couple of decades. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So well, you know, Terry yeah, is yeah, sixty. It, it really has. It really has to do with uh, religious affiliation. Uh, and more specifically, polling. So it's when polling agencies try to get a, a, you know, a feel of what, what's the religious landscape like. And so Pew probably is the one that's really popularized this term, uh, you know, a, a religious nun. Uh, and that's the idea that people, whenever they're being surveyed or whenever they're being asked, they're choosing to not identify with any particular religion. Now that needs to be nuanced because it doesn't mean that they're not spiritual and it also doesn't mean necessarily that they don't have a a faith system but what it does mean uh, is that they explicitly do not want to associate or affiliate with any kind of organized religion uh, but we, you know within that number uh, obviously is the increasing number of people who have no belief uh, you know you, you might you might say they're atheistic uh, and so and this number is uh, Drastically increasing. Uh, yeah, I, I don't quote me on these numbers, but you can find them easily on Pew's website. Thousands of people among,
0: are listening, but we're not going to quote you.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we can find the numbers pretty easily. But, um, uh, the uh, you know among millennials in particular, um, so that number uh, I think is around twenty four percent. So a quarter of millennials, um, you know, uh, and, and possibly even more would identify as a religious nun. Interesting. And, um, and, and that, that trend has, like, uh, increased quickly. I mean, we're talking about in seven years, I think Pew was reporting numbers like 12% or something like that. Now, I think what that really means is that, to me, I don't think it necessarily means that people are, there are less, there are less believers in North America, and these numbers are specifically around U.S., it doesn't mean that there's, uh, there's a larger number of people that are not believing, but I do think what it does mean, in some of the qualitative you know, um, research underneath this is showing, there's a book actually called The Religious Life of Spiritual Nuns by a lady named Elizabeth Drescher. Uh, and what it does mean is that uh, we, we've come into a day where those who are nominal Christians actually feel comfortable now saying that they're not Christians. Does that make sense? Makes perfect and sense, so, yeah. And so 30, 40 years ago, uh, when you took the same kind of survey, somebody who was a nominal Christian would have identified as Christian because culturally they're Christian. Uh, We live in a day and age now where they they don't have to say they're Christian anymore. And so they can check the box that says, you know, religious, none. You know, what's interesting about that particular uh, dynamic is that a lot of the churches that we started 30, 40 years ago really depended on our ability to reach nominal Christians, and so the explosive growth of you know megachurches. I think at you know over the last thirty years, we went from uh, you know less than a couple a dozen to now. Warren Bird told me. Uh, Warren Bird's a, a researcher. Uh, he told me last week there's sixteen hundred megachurches in North America today, and uh, a part of the growth of the megachurches, they were able to attract. At the time, the, the language we used was churched or you know, those who had left the church, uh, you know, essentially nominal Christians. And uh, now there's a freedom to say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not anything, uh, I'm not antagonistic, I'm, I might be apathetic, but I'm just, you know, I'm not religious. Mm-hmm. And so when, when you hear the term religious nun, it doesn't necessarily mean atheistic, although within that number includes the rise of, of those who have no beliefs at all.
0: Whether it was true or not, we used to say that America was a Christian nation, Now we talk about it being a post-Christian nation, a lot more secularization, as you just commented, Daniel, a lot more people willing to identify as nuns. Uh, At the same time, uh, immigration has brought different religions, uh, more different religions uh, into our country. And I think the easy reaction of the church to that is to go into hand-wringing and Fear and fortress mentality, and and think we can't make a difference in the culture. I doubt seriously if, if at the Send Institute you guys are wringing your hands, and, and you probably see this as a an opportunity, uh, certainly a challenge, but an opportunity as well. So uh, maybe even an, an advantage. So why why is this an advantage uh, that that the, some of the trends of the culture that we're seeing?
2: Yeah, you know, I think uh, when we say that. Christ, uh America used to be more Christian or you know even when we say the term uh, America is a Christian nation uh those kinds of things i, I want to be real sensitive to to those of us who grew up with a heritage where there was a, a long lineage of uh faithful uh you know not just church attendance but faithful gospel ministry and you know there are very many people in this in in our nation that belong to that heritage and uh, they can trace back you know their Ancestors to the Puritans, and uh, you know, I want to be very mindful of that. But I think that um, probably, uh, you know, most historians and, and sociologists of religion would probably agree that you know, there's there's always been streams in, in in America that were never necessarily Christian. You know, it's it's pretty evident when you think about our founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, uh, John Adams, Ben Franklin. You know, you just think about the the top five. I mean, none of them would would be what we would consider to be Bible believing Christians. And so, uh, you know, uh, I don't think it's a myth that you know the U.S. has Christian roots and Christian um, uh, influence, Judeo Christian values. Uh, you know, that that's a term that could be unpacked, but we won't, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> but I do think that there is a cultural heyday that uh, that the U.S. did have, and maybe it's around post world war ii you know maybe it's around the 50s and 60s uh, because that's where the denominations started growing uh, that's when you see denominations both evangelical and mainline denominations growing and I, you know a, a part of that is you know we're coming out of the war we're coming out of the depression this is the boomer generation they're they're being born uh, you know and the economy's growing You know that's that's where I think a lot of what we think of like you know middle class America what that looks like it was formed during that age, and denominations were growing. Institutional Christianity seemed to be growing, and I think for that it's it's created this idea that we used to have a day when you know the church was stronger. Again, kind of going back to what we're talking about with religious nuns, um, I think that's true. There was uh, there's a time when I think people who were pastors or clergy, they might've had a little bit more of a, you know, uh, an assumed respect, but I think, you know, we're, we're at a point now where I think we can't depend on cultural power in order to be a witness. And I think in some ways, it's made Christians, those of us who, who believe in the Bible and believe in evangelism, it's actually put us in a place where we, we really have to model Christ to people, where they mm-hmm. we really Amen. have to not just depend on the culture of the church and the cultural acceptance of the church to win people over. But we have to really depend on the, our authentic living and then a gospel articulation in today's culture. And to me, I think you know if it clarifies things, I think it's an advantage. It may look like, you know, if you look at charts and graphs, it may look like the growth rates are, are declining. The reality is that church attendance across the last, I think, 80 years, almost 100 years has been pretty steady among evangelical churches. It started to see decline over the last 10 years. It's really the mainline churches where church attendance has really declined. But, you know, that being said, I think that if it's if it works to clarify who we are as people of the book, people of the gospel, people of Jesus— then it's probably uh, better for us because I don't think that the cultural baggage that we were were carrying before as evangelicals uh, necessarily was helping us in terms of gospel ministry. It might have helped us maybe in terms of political elections, uh, but I don't know if it was necessarily helpful in terms of seeing people come to Christ. So from that perspective, uh, I think that we're being pushed to I wouldn't, we're definitely not being marginalized in the U.S. I don't, I don't want to, you know, we're not being persecuted, at least not in the way that you, you know, the church around the world is, but I think we're, we bring pushed, we're being pushed to be uh, clarified in what we mean by the gospel and how we live that out um, day to day as, as believers.
1: Well, that was a really concise and articulate insight. I appreciate that. And it is a challenge for us. We, to embrace living like Jesus in real life. One of the things I think is paired up with that a little bit is uh something called the decline narrative that uh, the Send Institute has written about in some articles. Uh, so can you explain that and why should we be wary of embracing that?
2: Yeah. You know, the decline narrative um, really um, is a way to, um, to talk about the church in North America or any, any church, not just in North America, but we use this typically North American in and Europe. And that's the idea that the uh, numerically and then culturally and then um, influence wise the church is having less impact or is less significant in society and again that that depends on this kind of institutional memory that it used to have more or it used to mean more and to a certain degree i think uh, it's a it's a very positive way to mobilize people to think about how do we really mobilize people to do missions it also kind of depends on this idea of kind of culture church and culture like church versus culture, and so how do we how do we win the culture back? so a lot of the language oftentimes sounds like that how do we how do we win the culture back or how do we you know um, how do we really have more influence in culture um, and i don 't think that 's necessarily good or bad, but I mean that's one way to mobilize people but i but I think the reality is that there are less and less people that would get excited about missions because you know, we're telling people less and less people go to church. I think Gen Xers, so about 20, 30 years ago, when we started seeing Gen Xers enter into adulthood and enter into youth ministry and associate pastors. And, That's me. You know, the it was you, huh? Yeah. And uh, denominations still had um, the sense in which like they were trying to grow and they were trying to, to really mobilize Gen Xers into church planting and missions, it was easy to say to them that, hey, you know, uh, there are less people going to church today. And unless you give your life to plant a church, uh, you know, there's going to be a community that doesn't know Jesus or less people are going to be going to church from that community. And we're finding that with millennials and probably for Gen Z uh, Z even more, uh, that that narrative is probably not going to mobilize as much. When you say to my kids, less people go to church, they're going to say to you, yeah, of course. I mean, right. I mean, people should kind of do their own thing. And so we're discovering that, you know, this is the decline narrative is one stream or one missional narrative among a number of missional narratives. And one of the other ones that's probably pretty obvious that we've we've heard over the last few decades is that God is reconciling communities together. And so, you know, one version of that is the multi-ethnic church. I mean, that's really become a phenomenon over the last 20 years. Uh, and probably more so in the last 10 years in church planting, where it's to the point now where, you know, you, you'd probably, you'd probably almost never catch a, a white person saying they're planting a white church. You know, I mean, they're probably Hopefully not. always, <laughs> almost yeah, they're probably almost always planting a multi-ethnic church. Uh, and the same thing, I mean, you know, you're, you're seeing people who are from immigrant backgrounds and they want to plant a second gen or a third gen church that can reach people that are different from them. And these are some other ways that you know the you know the reconciliation narrative, or you know whatever you want to call it, other ways to mobilize people into ministry. So I think it's important for denomination organizations to see how God sovereignly placed different kinds of people in North America and mobilize them accordingly to their own their own narratives.
0: So Daniel, uh, we still believe we're under the mandate of the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Absolutely, the, the gospel is still uh, to be lived out and proclaimed and and that it's effective as it's uh, lived out and proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what are some steps that pastors can take to make evangelism
2: normal to their congregations? Uh, three things come to mind. I mean, the first one is probably, you know, it's a bit cliche, but I mean, to, to me, as somebody who, you know, has pastored and planted and has a high premium evangelism, I, I do think modeling it personally for your church, uh, it it goes a long way. Uh, When you stop having stories about the people that you're sharing Christ with, when you stop uh, having examples and, uh, you know, and not just for the purposes of your sermon, right? But because you're actually (laughs) discipling people in your church to live the way that you're living, and when they don't hear you talking about, you know, um, you know, Fred who lives next door or, you know, um, uh, and that's why I think those who are in bivocational ministry, you know, that actually have a, a, a job outside of the church actually have a, a certain kind of advantage that those of us who have planted vocationally that it's harder for us to be in those spaces. So I think that's huge because I think... The temperature uh, oftentimes, I don't think it's all the time, but the temperature of, the, uh, of evangelism in the church is usually limited by the temperature of the pastor. Mm. You know, So if the Ooh. pastor's cold, I Freak. wouldn't be shocked that the evangelism temperature of the church is cold. Good word. Yeah. Secondly, I think that, you know, I think um, this is kind of pulling back a little bit and not just focus on the pastor. But, you know, specifically for us evangelicals, I think we have to be aware of certain things that have uh, hindered us from evangelism and maybe there's some things that uh, we're discovering about who we are um as a, uh, a as a group in north america that have created stumbling blocks for um for evangelism so these there are th- there may be things about the way that we do church or there may be things about the way that we perceive ourselves that actually are our cultural barriers where we can't even get to um to, uh, to evangelistic conversations, and so let 's say for instance i 'm just being super practical, but i mean there 's probably some other implications, but you know if our calendars are consumed by church activity and the kinds of church activity that just invest in kind of like you know the the sanctified you know few, then obviously we 're not going to have um, you know a, a portion time. To spend with non-believers. You know, I'll say it this way. In my context, where I was at in Toronto, I had a lot of LGBTQ, uh, neighbors who were unsaved, uh, far from Jesus. And we, we just had to really work hard to be in their spaces. Now, it was messy because when you'd see somebody from that community come to Christ, we had to work through everything, just like yeah. the way you had to work through, you know, people who were, uh, unsaved, got saved, uh, living together, not married. And when they came into our church, we had to walk through that with them, but being intentional in those spaces, even if you don't know how to fully articulate the gospel to somebody in that community, unless you're actually in that community and living and breathing in that culture, it's really hard to reach them, right? It's, it's Jesus. That's the example. He becomes incarnated into culture in order to reach us. And then probably the, the last thing is just working to make evangelism fresh, You know, I mean, it's, it's gotta be fresh. I don't, I don't think it has to be gimmicky. I don't think it should be gimmicky, but I think it's gotta be fresh. And so I think, you know, what are new ways uh, that we can reach uh, people in our community? Okay. So we used to do block parties. Okay. We've done that for 15 years. Maybe we should stop doing block parties. Maybe we should do in-home dinner parties or something like that, right? And so I think because what you want to make sure uh, with evangelism is that although you want it to be effective across the board, you don't want to over-systematize it and over-program it because um, then your people rely on the system and you're less reliant on gospel conversation. Mm. conversations. another so good word. I'd say, I'd say those three things to start yeah, off.
1: Thanks, excellent. Great stuff. So tell us, uh, you know, Send Institute has resources out there that are helpful to help people think freshly about church planning and evangelism. Tell us about some of those resources uh, that they can find at the Send Institute website.
2: Yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah. I mean, if you go to sendinstitute.org, uh, you'll see we've got uh, we've got our season one podcast that's up there. We've got some research that we put up there, best practices, uh, some bivocational stuff that we're putting out soon. Um, I'm working on an ebook right now called Convergence of Vocation. That'll be up by the spring. Um, we also are a part of a community that you guys are a part of, uh, CPLF, uh, which is Church Planning Leadership Fellowship. Love that. And that's a group that meets, uh, twice a year and we get to invest in that group as well. Uh, there's some think tanks that we kind of do behind closed doors. Uh, if you guys are interested in learning about what some of those think tanks are, uh, we love to pull in churches, especially those churches that are thinking about multiplication. For instance, in May, we're putting together a think tank for, uh, church planning churches, that have fully developed residencies that want to plant vocational planters. So mm. that sounds very niche, but we also think that that's a big part of uh, seeing mo- movement is churches, planting churches with people that aren't necessarily fully um, fully uh, um, full-time planters. Yeah. So.
0: Hey, Daniel, we thank you for what you're doing, my brother, and uh, appreciate the partnership that you have with our Alliance movement.
2: And yeah, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I, it really is. I mean, I, I, I joke with people. I planted churches with the Southern Baptists, but I, you know, I grew up Alliance and I feel like I'm a, I'm a missionary to the Baptists. There. there you go.
1: There you go. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I'll tell you what, on that note, I am so thankful for the Southern Baptists because they are so much leading the way in things like the Send Institute yeah. and helping, you know, denominations and networks work together for the gospel. Amen. You know, they're, yeah. lead, they're the point on that. So thank God yeah. for Kingdom Partnership. And I'm glad that you're a yeah. big part of that too.
2: I'm glad you mentioned that. Sorry. I know we're, uh, we're wrapping up here, but right. I also right. want to mention the manifesto that we released yes. two weeks oh. ago. Or we released back in Exponential uh, uh, Orlando in spring. And uh, we'd love for your listeners to check that out because we really do believe you talk about you know bringing people together to work collaboratively. That really is the heart of the manifesto. Absolutely.
1: So, we'll put that in the show notes yeah. as well. I've signed it. I know right. that our church planning leader here at the national level has signed it as well. We're in with it. Amen. Awesome. Thanks,
0: man. Working together for the sake of the gospel. Thank you, Daniel. Amen. Thanks for having me. All right. God God bless you. Well, Alan, some great insights from uh, our friend Daniel Yang, who has some real, kind of has to pulse the culture, doesn't he?
1: He sure does, man. Some good articulate, concise, and even deep answers to help us really think about the gospel and what we need to do to help our churches be sharing it.
0: So, we hope you will, uh, are, who are listening, will uh, follow up with uh, some of the resources that Daniel mentioned on Send Institute. Which will be in our show notes, too. Will be in our show notes. And uh, we thank you for
1: listening. What should people do if they listen and like this uh, podcast, Alan? Well, they should definitely review us and rate us where they listen to the podcast. That would be a helpful thing. And, of course, share it with their friends. Uh, we are now. Uh, really excited that that is starting to happen. And that's a valuable resource to lots of people. That is true. So thanks for being along on this
0: episode. We'll see you next time on Equipping You podcast. Meanwhile, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit
2: equippingyou.org.